Psalm 19 and Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is what we'll consider tonight. Careful contemplation of nature's beauty will lead the objective viewer of that beauty to a humility of soul that recognizes just how big God is and how small we are in comparison. God's signature in nature is very difficult to miss. Whether it's the beauty of a flower, a mountain stream or lake, a sandy beach, a starry sky, or a human being created in the image of God. God's signature in nature is impossible to miss. There have always been people who marvel at nature and come to have such an appreciation of it that they end up worshiping it. I would call them radical environmentalists. Do that today. They're so appreciative of nature, and I'm thankful that they are. But it's a mistake to worship that which has been created. A reasonable person will appreciate the creation, but worship the creator. And that's a very real problem in our culture today. Again, a reasonable person will appreciate the creation, take care of the creation, but worship the creator. J.J. Stuart Perron wrote these words over 100 years ago. Nature is the theater of his glory. All admiration in nature and a rightly tuned heart is a confession of that glory. To such a heart, there can be no praise of nature apart from the praise of God. David, whom we're studying, was certainly a person that had a rightly tuned heart. David understood nature and God. David had a proper perspective on nature. As he marveled at the wonder of the heavens and the glory of God, suddenly an overwhelming sense of insignificance came upon him. In light of the greatness of God, expressed in the awesomeness of his creation, where do I fit in? David asked. In light of everything that I see is God's majesty and his wonder and the beauty of his creation, where do I fit in? I know that God cares for me, David would say. He was a believer even at an early age. So he certainly understood that God cared for him. But why would God care for him? Given the magnitude of his being, why would he bother with me at all? That's a fair question. Then an equally stunning thought will come to David's mind. In spite of the reality of the immensity of God, he does care for me personally and for human beings collectively. Humanity occupies a very special position in God's creation. We are the only aspect of God's creation that is said to be created in His image. It's possible that angelic beings were also created in the image of God. But the Bible never tells us that. That statement is never made. Human beings, however, have been created in the image of God, both male and female. He created them in His image. That makes human beings special. That means we have special responsibilities, too. The creation of humanity is a very special creation. David is dealing with this dichotomy here. On the one hand, he looks at all of creation. He says, why are you paying any attention to me, little old me at all? On the other hand, he realizes that God has created human beings in a very special way. God's glory is revealed in nature. 
God's glory is more specifically revealed in that aspect of nature called humanity. And God's glory is ultimately revealed in a particular human being, Jesus Christ. This is how Psalm 8 will be roughly outlined. God's glory is revealed in nature. God's glory is more specifically revealed in that aspect of nature called humanity. And finally, God's glory is ultimately revealed in a particular human being, that particular human being being Jesus Christ. Most agree, most who study the Psalms agree that Psalm 8 is David's commentary on Genesis chapter 1. I love it that it's done this way because this is a divinely inspired commentary. It kind of lets us have an idea about how we should view other passages in the Bible, the Bible interpreting itself oftentimes. So I like that we have this. In this particular commentary on Genesis chapter 1, we have theological truth, and then we have an expected application of that theological truth. A key idea in this psalm is that God is revealing his glory through his creative majesty. God is revealing his glory through his creative majesty. That's a theological principle. It's incumbent upon us as products of his creation that we recognize the fact that God is God and we are not. Now that should be extremely obvious. But for so many of us, so much of the time, it's not obvious. And we start to believe that we ourselves are sovereign. We're the captain of our own ship. We chart our own destiny. We don't need God, thank you very much, except for maybe sometimes. Maybe I need him when my spouse is dying or my mother is sick, but I'll handle my business myself, thank you very much. We don't, we don't really need him there. God is God and we're not. We're part of his creation and we're a special part of his creation. Let's don't get the big head. Because we're a special part of his creation, we should be appreciative because we're a special part of his creation. He's God and we're not. He's the creator and we're part of his creation creation. As human beings created in the image of God, we do have significance. We're the pinnacle of his creative excellence. And it's legitimate for us to assume some form of esteem because of that. But we forever must keep this relationship straight. And if there's one thing David did, it was keep this part of his relationship with God straight. He understood that God was God and he wasn't. And the appropriate application of that knowledge for David was to fall on his face and worship God with reverence and awe. We have a theological truth. God is revealing himself. He's revealing his glory through his creative majesty. As a result of that, we need to understand that God is God and we're not. He's the creator, we're the creation. Once we get that, then how are we to apply that truth? We apply that truth in reverent worship of the Creator. Not back-talking the Creator, not shaking our fists at the Creator. And you know what I mean. Anytime we willfully do something we know is not right, we're shaking our fists at the Creator. Every time that thought goes through your head, I know that's not right, I'm going to do it, I'm going to confess it afterwards, He'll forgive me. We have shaken our fists at the Creator. Yes, you will be forgiven, but yes, you'll pay a price for that too. Can't shake our fist at God and say, I'll be the captain of my own ship. 
If I decide I want to do that, I'll do that. It's not a smart move. Yeah, David failed from time to time. But I'll tell you what, he understood this. He understood the creator-creature relationship maybe better than anybody this day. And that's what made David, King David, one of the greatest people of the Old Testament. Is that he understood that simple truth. That God's God and he's God. That sometimes we get too smart by men. Sometimes we need to appreciate these very simple truths and then live consistently with them. Look at the psalm now, if you were. This is for the choir director on the gibbet, a psalm of David. Don't know what a gibbet is. It might have been a stringed instrument, but that's very far from certain. The psalm begins with the familiar, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. Yahweh, our Lord. Literally, Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh, our Adonai, our Lord, our Master. How majestic is your name in all the earth. The way the the Bible uses the word name, both Old Testament and New New Testament, is for the person. Not just for those letters that make up what people call them. Biblically, a name is a reference to the person. The word for majestic can also mean splendor, powerful, or mighty. It stresses overwhelming ability and strength. Think about it. If God is to create everything in the universe, don't you think he's got to be pretty powerful? If God's to create everything in the universe, doesn't it make sense that he's awfully smart? I would go so far as to say, biblically, he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. You have to be to create everything in the universe. Listen, science has done a lot. Science has recognized a lot of God's truths. I have no problem with science. I studied a lot of it in my undergraduate studies. My undergraduate work is in biology. I appreciate biology. I appreciate the sciences very much. But all science does is recognize facts. It observes, if it's doing its job, it observes and recognize, recognizes facts. Science really is in no position to make value judgments on those facts. That, that's going beyond science. That gets into philosophy or that gets into theology. Christians should have no problem with science at all. Science, pure science, recognizes what is observable in the universe. If there's anyone that should recognize the omniscience and omnipotence of God, it's a science. Because of the factual data that they have. So that's what majestic points to. It points to God's overwhelming ability and his strength. The proper response to the revelation of his majesty is not only wonder and admiration, but it shouldn't stop there. The proper response is complete submission with reverent respect. That's the proper response. people repeat those words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, with very little thought put into their magnitude, the importance of those words. They may wave their their hands in the air, they may dance, and that's good and fine in some contexts. I have no problem with that. But it's only fine after a proper reflection on the majesty of God, the God who created the universe. The proper response to the revelation of the majesty of God is not silliness, but fear and trembling. And again, I have no problem with people dancing. David danced. 
Maybe dance on the ark, brought back the Jews. I, I no problem with dancing, provided it comes after thoughtful reflection upon God and his word. Otherwise, it's just an expression of one's personality. And some people like to dance. Some people like to sing. Some people are more quiet with regard to their personality. A person who dances is no more spiritual than someone who doesn't dance. A person who doesn't dance is no more spiritual than someone who does dance. The outward expression is not what I'm concerned with. It's not what the Bible's concerned with. It's concerned with what's in our soul. The response may be a reflection of someone's personality. That's true. But it needs to be a response that's based upon the teaching of the Word of God. Otherwise, we are making ourselves gods. David recognized that God's God, he's not. So he needed to submit to that. He's one of the all-time greats at doing it. Oh, yeah, I remember his sin. I'll get to that. We'll get to the great sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. No, nobody's forgetting that. But the way God looked at David's life, David's life was not defined by his sin with Bathsheba or his murder of Uriah the Hittite. He said, wow, hold on, because that's how many of us define other people's lives, by their failures. That's not how God looks at it. He looks at David's response on the whole to his revelation. And his response on the whole was to fall down in worship and recognize God is God and I'm not. You know, I'd rather have somebody like David, and I'm believe me, Hear me carefully. I'm not advocating either adultery or murder. Heaven forbid. But I would rather have somebody that's sinful and knows it and falls down in reverent respect and repentance and contrition than someone who thinks that they're just a little bit better than everybody else and has nothing to confess and nothing of which they need to repent. Give me David any day. When David reflected upon the majesty of God and creation, he stood in awe. He reflects this in different ways. Again, he does dance. What's wrong with most pictures? Most forms of dancing, probably. There's a couple forms I don't think are real reverent. Saw a punk rock video one time back in the 90s. I won't imitate it because I probably hurt myself, but I just didn't feel like that was reflecting the glory of God very much. But other than that, I haven't really seen too much. There were times when David's reflection, this response to God's glory, was an outward expression like that. There were other times when he fell on his face in reverence and awe. Depends on the particular situation. David goes on to reveal that God's splendor, a term that's related to majesty, but it's probably more closely aligned with renown, fame, or honor, perhaps. That's displayed above the heavens. Last part of verse 1. Who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. This is more than just simply poetic. God's creation includes the earth, but his creation and thus his sovereignty extend to the heavens. Theologically, we say it this way sometimes, that God is both imminent and transcendent. He's both imminent and transcendent. Imminent means he interacts with his creation. Some people use the word imminence and omnipresence as synonyms. They're not quite synonyms. Because it's not just that he's everywhere present, but he also interacts with his creation. That's imminence. Now, that's different from imminence. It sounds the same, spelled differently. The imminence of the rapture, that's a different thing. We're talking about imminence, meaning he's everywhere present and he interacts with his creation. But he's also 
outside of his creation. And his sovereignty exists outside of his creation. Somebody once told me that they, they thought they had it all figured out, this whole God thing all figured out, and that God was in the energy particles of his creation. What, what do you mean by that? So God, finally, God is the energy particle of, of creation, of, his, of the universe. God is the energy of the universe. I said, no, no, a thousand times no. That's, that's Eastern pantheism. That's not even theism. See, that's eminence but not transcendence. The God of the universe exists outside of his creation. But Christian believes in both eminence and transcendence. Now, those are $100 theological words. If you don't like those words, God is everywhere present and interacts with you and me on a personal level. But he also exists outside of this universe. Let me explain it this way. If you took one of the space shuttles that Houston didn't get, I really can't figure out why that's as big a deal as everybody's making, but it it is an insult, but I don't know why we expect to make such a difference. If we were to take one of those shuttles that's going to be retired, and we were just to head off into space and just to keep going, and let's say we had a couple hundred million light years to go, and somehow we could reverse aging and all that, and there was enough fuel, all those things, and you just kept going and going and going and going. You're never going to get to God. Never. Because God exists outside of his creation as well as interacts in with it. David recognizes this. And that's verse 1. All that is packed into this first verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name, and all the earth who has displayed thy splendors above the heaven. The next time you hear Sammy Patty sing that song, perhaps it will be more meaningful now. It's an incredibly powerful first verse. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make their enemy, the enemy and the revengeful cease. Is there anything that's more weak than a human baby? More helpless than a human baby? I'm not really sure if there is or not. You see, God is so powerful that even from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, he establishes, he demonstrates his own omnipotence, even from the weakness of human beings. The weakest of the weak, a little baby who grabs his mother's hand, he can't hurt anybody. God is demonstrating in that aspect of his creation how powerful he is. When I observe your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, in verse 3. Notice that David has no problem recognizing who the creator is and who the owner of creation is. Doesn't that have some personal application that you and I have? I think we pay our mortgage with Citibank, maybe, something like that. If you were to drive by my house and say, who owns that house? I probably would say me. But Citibank would probably even say them, at least for another 15 years, 14, 15 years, something like that. God might say it's this. He might say, you don't own it, neither does Citibank. That's my house. That's my clothes you're wearing. That's my front yard. That's my chair you're sitting in. It's all his. Because he's the creator of it all. We're just borrowing it from him. He just passed out a little bit of it to this person and to that person and to this person, and we have a responsibility for using it wisely. But as soon as we start to grasp something so tightly 
He said, that's mine. 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 You know what we sound like? A two-year-old. But to God, that's what we look like. A two-year-old. Now, we would scold our two-year-old for saying, mine, mine, mine. We said, no, that's not yours. That belongs to everybody here. Share with your brother. Share with your friend. You see what God does to you? Well, actually, that's mine, Lord. I gave it to you to do something right with it. So don't hoard it. You know what happens if you squeeze something so tightly? You either kill it or it's going to go right straight through your fingers. So it's not going to be very useful. When I consider the work of your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, then in verse 4, what is man that you thus take thought for him? Sometimes I like to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you should care for him? Here's the real question that David's asking. Now again, I know you know that this is quoted in the New Testament of Jesus. But in this, I want to study it in its original sense first. Here's the real question. Given who you are, God, and what you've done, given how powerful you are, and how you've expressed this in your awesome creative acts, what significance do I have? Why do you pay any attention to me at all? I really believe that until we ourselves come to the same point that David came to in our lives where we ask the same question with the same humility, that we will never, ever really worship, at least not really worship in a way that is consistent with what it ought to be. We might worship, and we might look good to everybody else, but there's one person that we need to be concerned about in terms of his response to our worship. It's the one we're worshiping. Some people, and I've seen them around the world, have a, have a proverbial thimble full of theological information. That's all they have, just this much. But they respond in an incredible way to that thimble. It would be better if they had a whole bucket, a whole barrel, give them time, and maybe they will. And hopefully they'll still respond the same way. There are other people that have a barrel, and because they have a barrel, they almost become bored with it. What's wrong? We should respond with all of who we are to the revelation that we've been given of God. Dwight Pentecost actually defines worship that way. Worship is the response to revelation. That's what worship is. Which leads me to this conclusion, and I think he's absolutely right biblically. I think you can defend that biblically. If worship is the response to revelation, then a response without revelation is not really worship. It's something, but it's not really worship. First we learn something about the God that created us. And then we respond to that. And we need to respond with our, all of our being. So many Christians never move beyond a superficial form of interaction with God because they never really come to grips with the creator-creature relationship. Too many of us take our relationship with God less seriously than we should because we've never taken the time to pause and consider the enormity of his power as expressed in prayer. One of the things that we teach our kids in the kids' classes at Pine Valley 
you teach them something about who God is, something about his essence, or something about his infinite perfection. Because until we understand something of that, we'll never really be able to respond to him correctly. We teach a lot of other things as well, but we do teach them who God is. At this point, David is overwhelmed by a feeling of insignificance. It's going to change, but at least at this point, compared to God's creation and, and God himself, yeah, we do sometimes feel a little bit small. So that's this question. What is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Verse 5, yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. Now that word is Elohim. When that word is translated into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the word angelos is used, A-G-G-E-L-O-S. The the G-G is pronounced in Greek, where we get our word angel. And when it's picked up in Hebrews, in the Greek New Testament, it's that same word angelos is used there as well. So I need I need to mention this just briefly. When the when the text in the Hebrew Bible says a little lower than Elohim, that's the word for God. This is normally translated in places when it's not referring to the God of the universe, God with a little G. It's totally context specific as to how it's translated. And whether it's the term angelos in the Septuagint in the New Testament or the term Elohim, gods with a little g, in context, both refer to angelic beings. That's why when the writer of Hebrews quotes this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, of Jesus, and says he made him a little lower than the angelos, he's not saying he made him a little lower than God himself. No, Jesus was perfectly equal with God the Father. Co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. So the writer of Hebrews is not undoing the whole idea of the hypostatic union or the idea that Jesus is both God and man when he quotes this passage. All David is saying is that, yes, human beings do have significance. He's made us just a little bit lower than the angels. Now, there will be a time when I think that's reserved because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. In eternity, I believe we'll have a higher position than angels. And not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that Jesus Christ wasn't the God-man ratio. He's the God-man. And that union is personal and it's eternal. Jesus Christ will forever be his name. That tells you a little bit about the significance of humanity. So the first thing that we all have to come to is an understanding in humility that compared to God himself, if that's the only way we look at it, we're insignificant. But when we realize that as part of God's creation, he has created created us in his image, then that returns the significance to us. But we have to start with the insignificance before we can appreciate the significance. At least that's what David does. He realizes first how insignificant he is, and then it's almost as if God taps him on the shoulder and says, okay, David, you're right. You should have humility. But now I want you to know that you are very special by the Father. In fact, my son's going to come die for you. That's how special you are. Jesus Christ didn't die for any other aspect of God's creation besides humanity. But the death that Christ died on the cross, in all seriousness, was for you personally. Because you have significance because of it. Because you're created in his image, and he loves you with a love that is indescribable. 
doesn't that make you want to respond in worship? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than the angels or the gods, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Now, ultimately, the writer of the Hebrews takes this and applies it to Christ. But David's the first one that said it. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Again, originally, this applies to human beings. Adam was the sovereign over the earth, or the designated sovereign over the earth when he was created. All of us know from reading Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that Adam blew it. And now Satan is the god, little g, little g, of this world. Mankind had the responsibility to be the ruler. So you see what David is recognizing from Genesis chapter 1. Remember, this is a commentary on Genesis. Compared to God in his incredible majesty, I'm insignificant. However, God has chosen to impute significance to me because I'm created in his image. Just a little lower than the angels. And then not only that, he put mankind in charge of his creation. So you have the creation, mankind's in charge of that, and then God is infinitely above mankind. That's why I started this off by saying we need to be very careful about the creature-creator relationship. We need to appreciate nature. I love nature. I love nothing better than to sitting next to one of those mountain streams that I showed you a few minutes ago. I could spend all day next to one of those things. Just give me some water or Dr. Pepper and some Hostess cupcakes with a cream-filled center that's not really cream. One of my friends who manufactures that stuff told me that what it really was, and I'd, it helped me to get past eating that stuff. <laughs> I love that, though. But when I sit there and recognize how beautiful that is, the next thought out of my soul is how wonderful God is. And when that's the response of your soul, no matter how it's expressed, even if nobody else is there, that's worship. That thought, that response is worship. You probably worship a lot more than you think you do. You worship a lot more than just that Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Sunday morning. That's worship. Thou dost make him, verse 6, Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Everything was put under man's dominion. When Genesis starts off, Adam is ruling in perfect environment over all of God's creation. Perfect man ruling over perfect environment. Adam falls. The rest of, the rest of the Bible is essentially a narrative of the glory of God, how God redeems us, saves us. By the time that we get to the end of Revelation, what happens? Perfect man is again ruling over perfect creation, just like it was designed to be all the way in, in the beginning. David recognizes this in Psalm chapter 1. He got it right. The psalm ends... As it begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. It's as if he started off with his message statement. He summarized his message, and then he finishes with his message statement. By the way, that's a mark of a solid person. God's glory is revealed in nature. God's glory is more specifically revealed in that aspect of nature called humanity. 
and God's glory is ultimately revealed in a particular human being, Jesus Christ. When we go back to verses 4 and 5, we have an immediate application to David and the rest of us. But the ultimate application is to Jesus Christ. God's glory is ultimately revealed in a particular human being, Jesus Christ. He is God. You're not. And the appropriate application of that knowledge is to fall on our faces in reverence. 